You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So as we dive into God's word this morning, if you haven't been with us, we have been journeying together through this letter to the Philippians. And we find ourselves once again in Philippians chapter 4. And we're focusing in and drilling down on two verses in particular this morning. Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. And as we prepare to do so, let me ask you a question. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? I inflected my voice differently each of those questions because each of those questions really asks a different question, right? And what we're going to look at this morning from this passage is the incredible fundamental importance of what you and I think about. Because as scripture tells us, from right thinking comes right living, Or to put it another way, for those of you who like your King James language, King James in that translation, Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, As a man thinketh, so he is. From right thinking comes right living. And if you were with us last week, Gary Brashears, one of our elders and one of our preaching team, took us through really the first portion here of chapter 4. And in that, what Paul is talking about is what it really means to stand firm as a child of God, to live for God, to stand firm as a citizen of heaven. And we looked at the reality last week of that we're called to be peacemakers. And Gary took us through some very practical process with our relationships with how to live that out and be like that. And we also looked at, once again, this theme that occurs over and over again in this letter to the Philippians about rejoicing, about having joy and what that looks like. And again, there were some very powerful, tangible truths that we looked at last week. So if you haven't heard that sermon, as always, I would encourage you to go to our sermon archives on our website or go through our app. And you can also listen to sermons there that way too and to capture that because what we're going to continue on with today is a continuation of this same flow of thought. What does it mean to stand firm as a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to live for and follow and live like Jesus? So now we come to Philippians 8 and 9. But as we do so, I want to back up and look at the verses that Gary um, took us through last week because they do all flow together. So here we go. Let me read this to you if you have a Bible. Open to Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 9. If you have an electronic Bible, turn that on and go here. And this is what this says. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yoda and I plead with Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. And now he's going to begin to tell us what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, in our two verses today, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, since we're only covering these two verses today, we've got some time to really walk our way through this and to define terms. And it's really important that we do that because what he's talking about here really fundamentally is how we think. Because how you think will determine how you live. And what he's really talking about here is this overarching value of guiding and guarding your thinking. And he's going to get, and does get, real specific about what this looks like and, and what it means. For starters, let's start with the word think. What does he mean by that? This is a variety of ways that this can be translated from the original language, to ponder, to deliberate, to contemplate, to mull over, to focus. I think the one that best captures what he's talking about here, though, is this idea of meditating or meditation. Now, when you think about meditation... What does that mean? What comes to mind? Because the Eastern religions teach that meditation is an emptying of your mind. You empty your mind and then whatever comes into your mind is is what you mull over and focus on. That is not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation, the meditation that's being talked about here is exactly the opposite of that. Yes, it's about quieting your mind, but it's not about quieting your mind so you can empty it. It's about quieting your mind and focusing your mind so that you can be filled by God's word. This is what Psalm 1, by example, talks about, where it says, I meditate on your word day and night. And this is so fundamentally important for us to understand and to own and to practice Because you and I live in a culture where we are bombarded by information and input. It's constantly coming at us. By way of example, the average American watches five to seven hours of TV a day. Five to seven hours a day. That does not take into consideration the electronic devices that you have and that I have that we're constantly looking at and interacting with as well. Now, little math here for you. Five to seven hours a day of input from a TV versus how much input from God's word? A first grader can do that math and figure it out, which means I can do it because I'm not very good at math. But there's a huge disparity with what's coming at us and saturating our minds, meditating on, taking in the word of God, because of the culture we live in. You live in a day and age where you and I are exposed to more information, more input than any other generation before us. So this is profoundly relevant and practical for us to get our hands around. What does it mean to meditate on the word of God in your daily living and mine? Yes, it means we read the word of God and we meditate on the word of God that way, but it's also about 
memorizing and applying the word of God as you live out your daily life when it isn't necessarily open on your phone or your hardcover Bible in front of you. Let me give you a very tangible example. A couple weeks ago, our son who goes to school and works and lives in Montana surprised us and came home without telling us. Jamie and I were were out doing some stuff and we came home and here's our four-wheel drive parked in our driveway. And sometimes I'm a little slow and I thought, hmm, I don't remember parking the truck there. Oh yeah, I didn't park the truck there because it's not my truck. It's our son's truck. That means he's here from Montana. And there's nothing like walking in a house and having a six-foot-four son give you a bear hug, right? It's pretty fun. So he surprised us. We had no idea he and his roommate were coming down to see us. It was excellent. He was with us for 24 hours because he had to get back and go to work. Doesn't that sound like a young adult adult thing to do? Hey, let's drive 12 hours and go home. Okay, let's go. That's literally what they did. So he hops back in his truck to to go back and he's going to, it's a 12-hour drive if you really cruise from here to, to Bozeman, Montana, where he's at. And so he takes off and, you know, he'll get home at like three or four in the morning if all goes well. Well, about 2.30 in the morning our time, we get this phone call and it's our son. And I pick up my phone, and I'm trying to wake up. I, I don't wake up real easily. When I go to sleep, I feel like I've got a job to do, so I do it. And so when I get woken up, I, I, it's hard for me to remember who I am, let alone talk to someone coherently on the other end of the phone. So the phone rings. It's 2.30 in the morning. I'm going, who are you? How are we related? Do I know you? You know, and we begin to piece the pieces together now real quickly. Our son got all the way to Butte, Montana, which is 80 miles from Bozeman, when the truck began to have problems and he wisely pulled over there and there was no going any further. It was, it was done for whatever was wrong with it. And so Jamie and I are trying to figure out and literally in the middle of the morning, you know, what in the world do we do? How do we figure this out? We get him in the truck towed to Bozeman and, you know, we find out the next week as we get it to a mechanic that the transmission's gone and so is the drive shaft and so is the front end. And it's like, oh. This is thousands of dollars of repair. Now, the verses I just read to you, the verses that we looked at last week with Gary. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But with everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You've been there. Something has happened in your life, something very unwelcome, and you have every reason to be anxious. This was totally unexpected. We are in the most expensive season of our life so far as parents. We have two kids in college. We have a third who will head there next fall. And now we have this incredibly expensive repair and we've got to figure out what are we going to do and how are we going to do it so we began to meditate and put this truth and these truths into practice well for starters what do we have to be thankful for there is literally a hundred miles of mountains in idaho and montana that you have to cross through in order to get from here to there he could have broken down way out in the middle of nowhere He could have been alone. His roommate was with him. You know, we began to go down this list of we have a lot to be thankful for. He wasn't hurt. The transmission didn't go out in such a way that he lost control of the truck and, you know, something worse happened. We began to think about, and this isn't putting a bright 
This isn't putting a bright face or pretending that things are better than they are, putting a, you know, a smile on things that are hard. But there is a value that is being talked about and a reality in these verses that you always have something to be thankful for and it's very, very important that you find those things. And so we're doing that in this process and we have lots of reasons to be anxious about this. How in the world are we going to figure this out? And as Gary helped us realize and recognize last week, Satan lives and loves, lives within and loves the what-ifs in our life. So much fear is driven in our lives by us going down the road of, well, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? Or what about this? Or Be concerned? Absolutely. But don't be anxious. And then it was also the process of going back and remembering, okay, how has God blessed us in these kinds of situations? How has he provided? And when he hasn't miraculously provided, how have we been able to figure things out? So we went back and deliberately remembered, okay, this is what God has done. And, you know, we're still living in this, but the reality is this is how you meditate on God's word. This is what this is talking about, is filtering the things that happen in your life through the realities, through the promises, through the truths of God's word. And that's what he means by meditate. He goes on to tell us that as we guide and guard our thinking, we need to focus on what is true. And in many ways, I don't think that needs, needs a lot of definition. We intuitively get that. But where you find truth, we definitely need to talk about. Because once again, we live in a broken culture that teaches us that truth is found in you. You are the one who determines what's true. Scripture teaches that all truth is God's truth. And there is this thing called absolute truth, which is true for all people in all situations, in all cultures, in all contexts. But we live in a culture that has rejected that, and it basically tells us, well, you find truth wherever you can find it, and what's true for you is, is true. But God's word says, yeah, no. All truth is God's truth. So therefore, we filter our lives. We filter the information that comes at us. We filter all that happens to us through the written, revealed word of God. God. That is is our standard. And so very practically, what this looks like is, once again, last week, Gary helped us remember once again that we are not defined by our past. Your identity is not your past. Look to the past for lessons? Absolutely. But don't keep looking to the past with regret. Your past brokenness does not define you and it does not define me as a child of God because we're nobility. That's why he tells us to think about what's noble. Another word for noble is honorable. Are you noble? Are you honorable? There's a show that we've begun to watch that has been out for a number of years now. It's called Downton Abbey. Many of you are familiar with it. It's a PBS show. I was gone some weeks ago on a prayer retreat, and I heard from my girls that they had found this show when I got back, and they said, okay, you know, you need to see this, Dad. And I thought, okay, tell me what it is, and I'll decide if I'm going to watch it. Oh, it's this great show called Downton Abbey. And I went, oh, you're serious? Really? I, I need to watch that, you need to watch it. Okay, so I very reluctantly watched it, and I'm hooked, okay? I'll just admit now. Hi, I'm Jay. I watched Downton Abbey. <laughs> I'll hand in my man card after the service, but, you know, but it's not like that. You know, one of the things that I love about that show is it gives you a glimpse, it gives you a look 
at what first, uh, excuse me, what the life was like at the beginning of the last century. So you follow this family now through all the incredible world events that are beginning to happen on their watch. World War I and the 20s and the massive change in technology and culture that begins to come their way. And you see this family of English nobility try to figure out what their identity is and how they find their way through it. And for those of you who have seen the series, you'll know who I'm talking about. There's the grandmother, the Dowager Grantham is her name. She is a handful. Holy cow. Just when you really don't want to like her, She does something honorable. By way of example, and that's what this is talking about here in this this passage, relationships. The couple, the Lord and Lady Grantham, lose one of their daughters in childbirth. She's giving birth to their first grandchild and and she dies. It's very, very tragic. And after that show, we asked each other, why are we watching this show? I mean, that's just brutal. But she dies and so the parents begin to blame each other for various reasons for what happened. So the grandmother, the, the lady dowager Grantham, goes and finds the doctor and has a very candid heart-to-heart with him and says, you need to help me repair the marriage of my son and my daughter-in-law because they're blaming each other. And so he sits down with them and says, basically, even if she would have been in a hospital with the very best medical care, I couldn't have saved her life. And it's a defining moment where there's reconciliation in their marriage and relationship. And it's because his mother did something honorable, was a peacemaker, and helped bring them back together. That's the kind of nobility this is talking about. And by the way, we will answer that question. Are you nobility? Yes, you are. God's word says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, you are a royal priesthood, God's chosen people. In this very letter we're looking at, in this very section we're looking at, you are a citizen of heaven, which means in your thinking, think like nobility, and in your acting, Act honorably, because that really is your identity. Let's move on. This goes on to say, think about what's right. Some ways we can define that. Just, innocent, proper. Ultimately, what reflects the character of our God? And again, one of the ways we live distinctly as Jesus followers in this culture is that we don't take the easy path of complaining and grumbling. Do you remember Earlier in this letter, when Paul said, do everything without arguing or complaining, and what does our culture do? Argues and complains. You are encouraged to do that. That's constantly promoted. That's constantly elevated as a value that we all must have. We all must be outraged about something. We all must be up in arms about something. We must be divisive about this. You know, no. That's not what it means to think rightly. We have a media that focuses on everything that is wrong with our world. It is so profoundly depressing to watch the news. Anything that's broken, anything that's not working right, anything that's controversial, anything that is wrong gets promoted and talked about and reported on in our, in our media. And it's so difficult to maintain perspective, but we have to guide our thinking. And again, it doesn't mean that we pretend things are better than they are. We should be the most realistic people in the world. We know this world is broken, amen? This world is not the way God intended it to be. God is actively redeeming it and repairing it and restoring it, just like Jay talked about, his friend who takes wood and repurposes it and redeems and restores it. God's doing the same thing with the world, and someday Jesus is going to come back, and it's all going to be restored to what God intended it to be. But 
we don't focus on the brokenness. We don't pretend it's not real, but at the same time, that is not our focus. We have to guide our thinking, which means we think purely, without defect or blemish. It means modest, holy, sacred. I mean, in its essence, it means not to be mixed with other substances. And boy, is this ever challenging. This means we don't lust after stuff or people. This means no pornography. This means we don't let our anger just go. This means we don't hold on to bitterness. And man, one of the other ways that this surfaces itself, there's lots of applications, but one way in particular is we don't replay brokenness in our life. Just recently, I had this thing I was headed off to do and I was going to be driving to the other side of the city, so I had lots of time to think. And I found my thoughts going to something that had happened in my life years ago, a long time ago. And the more I began to think about it, the more I began to get angry because someone had wronged me. And it was someone who I had forgiven long ago. But I began to think about it, reflect on it, and it started to make me angry again. And I caught myself and I thought, what are you doing? Why are you thinking about this? And by the way, the person who came up with forgive and forget never needed to forgive someone. Okay, that is not scripture. That is horrible advice because the whole act of forgiveness is a choice where you choose to forgive someone and when you do remember that, you go back to that defining moment where you said, no, I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive. I choose to, and that's what I did with this. No, I chose to forgive. So, but that's where my thinking went and how easily our thinking goes to past wrongs that have been inflicted on us or brokenness from our past or hurts that we've endured. And God's word tells us, don't live there. Think about what's pure. Think about what's lovely, beautiful, pleasing, attractive, enjoyable, motivating appreciation. This is God's world. And God made this world for our enjoyment, meaning his fingerprints are all over the place. As broken as this world is, there's still a lot of good in it because it's his world. And so wherever we find goodness, this is telling us unashamedly, celebrate that, enjoy that, bask in that, think about that. Yesterday, I, I met someone for lunch at Killer Burger. It was epic. It was, it was wonderful. My health coach wife said, go and be well fed, and I was. <laughs> Killer Burger fries, it was, it was awesome. Man, it was worship, baby. It was worship. It was so good. What does scripture say? Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Where you find good food, man, eat it. Not too much, but eat it. Enjoy your coffee. Good coffee, not bad coffee. Listen to music and enjoy art, the mountains, the leaves. Do you realize we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world when it comes to fall, especially? Have you seen the leaves? I have gone out of my way to find excuses to drive persimmon with the red leaves there. I mean, most of them are on the ground now, but we appreciate, we think about what's lovely. That's pleasing to God. God wants us to do that. And then these other words, I they really don't need a lot of definition example, but admirable, what's of good report, what's well-recommended, what's commendable, what's gracious, excellent, good, virtuous, 
Excellence of character is really what this is talking about. Praiseworthy, commendable, wonderful, beautiful, anything worthy of praise. So once again, the question is before us, what are you thinking about? And how are you thinking about it? iPhone 10 just came out. For $1,000, give or take, you can have one. Do you know that there's an app on there called iThought? And do you know what iThought does? It takes what you're thinking about and it will project it up on a screen. So, if this was your iPhone 10 and you opened iThought and it projected up on the screen what you were thinking, what would we see up there? Now, some of you are going, oh, crud, does it really do that? No, it doesn't. There is no such thing as I thought. Yet. It's probably coming our way. But if your phone, by way of example, could take your thoughts or mine and project them up on the screen for everyone to see, what would we see there? And some of you might say, rightfully, to some degree, well, it's no one else's business what I think. That's true to some degree. But... From right thinking comes right living. There is an inseparable link between how you think and what you do. And that's why Paul goes on to say, whatever you've learned, whatever you've received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. If I've taught you this, if I've told you this, if I've modeled this to you, then do it. And that's really what this is talking about. Ultimately, is putting godliness into action through what you think and, yes, through what you do. And what's so interesting to me is that the behavioral sciences, especially in the last 20 years, are validating over and over again what it is that we're talking about here out of God's word this morning. There's a branch of psychology called positive psychology. And one of the leading researchers for that is a guy by the name of Sean Aker. He's a Harvard researcher. He has done one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. I went and watched it in preparation for what I'm about to share with you. And it it really is remarkable. But basically what they did was they have studied through the last 20 years, what is it that makes people happy? And one of the findings out of that is it's not necessarily circumstances that make people happy. And what have we been reminded once again from this letter to the Philippians? There is a joy, there is a happiness that transcends circumstance. Yes, enjoy your killer burger, but there will be times you go through those difficult times, those hard times in your life, and yes, you can still find joy and happiness. So what they did was they tried to summarize their findings, and I want you to look at this list with me. And for our friends on the internet who may be podcasting this, I'll read it. But this is the top five things they found that were true in the life of the most happiest people, whether they were quote-unquote religious or not. Meditation slash prayer. Number two, gratitude. Number three, acts of kindness. Number four, journaling and remembering. And number five, exercise. Now let me ask you, 
what does this very letter talk about in regard to these principles here? Four of the five are found within the book of Philippians. It doesn't outright say journal, but it does talk about remembering what God has done. And I can unequivocally tell you that exercise leads to happiness because every time I stop running, I am happy. (laughs) Every time it comes to an end, I am so happy. But what a coincidence. The behavioral sciences confirm, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, what God's word has said for thousands of years and what God's people have practiced and known for thousands of years. But the one missing ingredient from this list that we have as Jesus followers, the reality that we have as Jesus followers, is we have the Holy Spirit. God himself lives inside of you. And what is different from the self-help focus of positive psychology is that our, our end focus isn't ourselves. It isn't necessarily our personal happiness. Our end focus is Jesus, to be more like him, to love God and to love other people the way we have been loved. And what's so incredible about that and what is so counterintuitive about that is as you make your focus this amazing God who has done so much for you and as you make your focus loving and serving other people in his name, That'll actually make you happy. And that'll make you joyful. And the path to happiness and fulfillment isn't about making life all about you. Oh, that works temporarily, but it's broken. The path to fulfillment and happiness and joy, like this letter has been reminding us over and over again and reminds us again today, is by living life on God's terms. That's where Jesus can say, again, counterintuitively, you want to be first? Then you must be last. You want to be served? Then you serve others. You want to be forgiven? Then you forgive. You want to be blessed? Be a blessing. And so it goes. And if that wasn't awesome already, it gets even better with what he promises us. The God of peace will be with you. Didn't he just say the Lord is near in the verses prior to this? You see, standing firm in the Lord also focuses on the reality that the God of peace is always with you. And there is a profoundly deep connection with how you think and what you think about and the depth of peace you have in your life. When you realize that God is real, his promises are real and true, and he is always with you. I'd like to share a story with you that I think ties together very practically and very powerfully what it is that we've been talking about here this morning. But I'm going to warn you, this is, this is real life and this is difficult. But at the same time, there is a joy and a peace that is tangible and real. The picture's up on the screen behind me. That's Katie Evans, and this is her story and the story of her family. On Friday, October 6th, Katie Evans of Santa Clarita, California, made one of the countless long drives to visit her twin daughters who were born at UCLA Hospital. Born in August nearly 15 weeks too early, Evans spent every possible moment at their side. Late in the evening, Evans said goodbye 
to these little girls behind us and began the drive home to her husband Jacob and their four young sons. Less than a mile from home, Evans was involved in a crash too horrific for description. Although the investigation is still underway, the other driver was allegedly intoxicated. It is believed that she died instantly. Interviewed by phone, Evans' husband Jacob described the longest and most agonizing night of his life. When his wife hadn't returned home in a reasonable amount of time, he became worried. After calls to friends in the hospital, he drove the route she would have taken home and in a matter of minutes was face-to-face with a police barricade. The next few hours marched by like exhausted soldiers. Friends and members of his church filled his home until finally, at 5.30 a.m., the coroner knocked on the door with one hand and held Katie's driver's license with the other. The first thing I thought was to how to tell my boys, Evans said. And later that morning, when the moment was right, Evans gathered the three older boys for a family meeting. Evans led a discussion about God's plan for his children. Then I told them that God had asked them to exercise faith in his plan. I said that their mother had been killed. The boys cried their little hearts out, and I was so glad to have so many friends there to hug and hold them. As Evans considers his wife's legacy, he knows it's rooted in forgiveness. He has no doubt Katie would want friends and family to forgive the other driver. Evans said life is too short for anything other than letting go and moving on. In fact, when he heard that since Katie's passing, some within his company were expressing anger and frustration, he wrote an open letter to the company, and this is how it reads, and I want you to listen for what we've talked about here this morning. Quote, obviously, this is a difficult time for me and my family. It has been made more difficult as I've heard that some are angry with the driver who killed my wife. Katie wouldn't have wanted that. She was the embodiment of compassion. And the hateful activities reported in the news recently troubled her greatly. She felt like there was already too much anger in the world. And I want you to know that I forgive the driver of that accident. Of course I'm sorry it happened. Of course I wish I could go back in time and change it, but we are all best served by moving forward with today's reality and the best way to move forward is to honor Katie's memory and focus on how to take care of her six children. Trials and tribulation are mandatory. Misery is optional. And happiness is a choice. Sometimes a difficult one. And I confess, I feel little in the way of happiness at the moment, but I am determined to be as happy as I can be, and for now, that is found in my profound gratitude to a generous and supportive community for the love they have wrapped around me and my family during this challenging time, end quote. And as our interview ended, I asked Jacob Evans what the final message was he had for readers, and he said, Katie wasn't perfect. No one is. But if you want to honor Katie, do what she did every day of her life. Go find a way to make the world a little better. And what he's really saying there is go and find a way to redeem the broken world around you. And that is what we do as Jesus followers. Through how we think, through what we do, and through how we live.
as our worship team comes and as we sing about a God who is good. Some of you are walking through something right now where you don't even feel like you can sing these words. That's okay. Just let the words wash over you. Others of you, somewhere on that spectrum, can sing this and can mean it. But this is what you can know. God is good, not because our circumstances are, not necessarily because our life is, but because he always does what he promises he will do. And that matters. That's what we think about. That's what we live out. And that's what we believe. Jesus, thank you that you are faithful, you are good, and as we sing these words now, would we we be reminded of these realities? Thank you. Thank you that you're real. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're near. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.